0: Edward Govan is a writer and translator. His volume of Georges Olivier Chateaulian's Selected Stories, A Life on Paper, from the Small Bear Press won the Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Award and was shortlisted for the Best Translated Book Award. His new volume of translation is The Conductor and Other Tales by Jean Ferry. Thank you for joining me, Edward.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful.
0: What you do divides into two really interesting and distinct categories that have to work together. On one hand, you're a curator of the French fantastic fiction. You have to get to know a whole genre of fiction in another language and understand who the big players are and what the stories are and what the history is and what's worth translating and what's coming up new. And that's one kind of art. So, why don't you just talk about that form of your art? As a curator,
1: well, you know I think actually translators are increasingly called upon to to be critical uh, to be critics as well rather um I mean to preface their books to contextualize their authors, both in the literatures they come from and in the literature they're going to, in this case American literature or literature in english so and also translation itself is a partly critical act in that in terms it's often referred to as the closest kind of reading. In terms of being a a curator, I do think that I'm really sort of just dusting off a tradition that has gone underground. I think the roots of the, the fantastical tale, after it leaves German romantics like, like Hoffman and tieck it is a, a story of mutual Franco-Anglo influence. I mean, you have, you have Baudelaire's Poe, which made Poe a much more canonical writer in France than he... he than, than maybe he is today in the States. And then the decadence, the English and um, French decadents, openly acknowledge their influence on each other. In the 20th century, the fantastical vein kind of goes underground. It's influenced by surrealism. It's influenced by various experimental literary movements. It gets overshadowed, I think, by other major French literary and philosophical or even critical imports of the 20th century. I, I feel like I'm just sort of updating a longstanding correspondence or a tradition of mutual influence with a very strong foundation. One writer from the new weird uh, contemporary Anglo-American fantastical movement, when they acknowledge the open influence of the, the French and English decadence, then I feel like, well, then maybe it's time we heard from the contemporary French. You know, maybe it's time we filled in that history from the 20th century.
0: I think it's so interesting in your latest book, Jean Ferry, this is his only book of fiction and he's better known for his films and I thought that was really a fascinating uh, transition. So talk a little bit about where he comes from and where he fits into the surrealist movement as well because he was kind of on the outside of everything.
1: Yeah, he was. He was kind of a jack-of-all-trades and and that's one of the things that makes him really fascinating. Uh, That and the fact that this single book of his has had a fairly long-standing called Reputation, the most famous story in it by far is The Society Tiger, which was praised by André Breton, the father of surrealism, when it first came out. And that's by far the most anthologized story. It's even been translated into English twice before in different anthologies. Ferry's own book has been reprinted three times in France by various publishers over the years because it just, it just had a saying power to it. I think surrealism was the first movement that Ferry got into, partly because he was enamored of film and Dali and Bunuel were doing their experiments in it, but then he quickly became a major player in the pataphysical
0: college. Tell me a little bit about what pataphysical means, because I actually belong to a radio station that calls itself pataphysical broadcasting.
1: Yeah, it's a term made up by Alfred Jarry, who is probably most famous for his play Ubu Wah, or King Ubu, which lends its name to... I think one of the major collections online of avant-garde archival material, ubuweb. Pataphysics has been, because it's a made-up word, it's been variously defined. But I think the most succinct definition is that it's the science of imagine, uh, the science of imaginary solutions, and it's a science of exceptions. Whereas the rest of normal science is founded on repetition, verification through repetition, but everything in paraphysics is about the one-off and the unique circumstance which actually makes it closer to literature and life.
0: When you talked about the science of exceptions, that's exactly what Charles Fort was all about, was the things that science would not accept. He recorded in his book, The Book of the Damned.
1: Yeah, uh, patashexics is very linguistically inventive. I mean, it spread to other arts as well. It really is about sort of making up rigorous nonsense. And it was a major avant-garde movement of the uh, early twentieth century that it in turn gave birth to Ulipo, which has I think overshadowed it in in terms of stature as a as a liter a purely literary school. But it was very influential both on the surrealists and the absurdists.
0: So tell us a little bit about Ferry, because his life was very interesting for all his interest in pataphysics, in surrealism and his Writing for weird films, these the tales in this book. He lived a kind of from what I read in your introduction. He was kind of a practical guy. He was just trying to make a living.
1: Yeah, it's funny that one of fairy's abiding themes is fatigue and exhaustion, and I do think that may have come in part from how hard he was working. All his life, he was a really extremely prolific screenwriter. And without projecting, I can say he probably rude, not quite having enough time to work on his own things. But he had some adventures early on in his life. He was in the merchant marine, he traveled to exotic ports of call. But afterwards, he was fairly firmly rooted in Paris. I think now that the history of film is more established and people are more interested in digging up forgotten writers or cinematographers or people who were, you know, less visible than the directors. Truffaut gives him a mention in one of his early screeds against the sort of staidness of French filmmaking and, and names him as one of the sort of the expert screenwriters.
0: And uh, Ferry actually wrote a, the screenplay for a movie I know I've seen, Daughters of Darkness. Yes. <laughs> yeah. An old cheesy uh, vampire movie.
1: Yeah, Ferry was always interested in the fantastic and for the same director, he adapted the Belgian writer, John Ray's classic, uh, Malpertuis, It's sort of a gothic set in a on a castle. And also he worked in terms of fantastical uh, filmmakers. He also wrote for Georges Franju, who's, you know, renowned for uh, Eyes Without a Face.
0: You know, it's so interesting, the kind of cross-fertilization that you've achieved with this book in terms of bringing in the film, his literary work, his, his other life work, and, and This book itself has an interesting history, originally released in a limited edition of 100 copies.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've never actually laid hands or even eyes on on that version. But yeah, that that was uh, the first edition to appear, and it was through a publisher that was actually called the Cineast Bibliophiles. So... And that, that again, crosses over between two worlds. But Jean Polon, uh, a very, very influential editor at Gallimard, was the man who championed uh, lots of great, fantastical writers. I mean, Polon is kind of uh, is a fascinating figure. He, he really did know everyone, and his mistress was the one who originally wrote the story of O, and he was a resistance hero. And anyway, he, he's famous for championing major literary figures of the French 20th century, but the more... I read into it. The more I find that he was, you know, a lifelong supporter of the fantastic as well, and he he was the one who ushered Ferry into a wider print run at Gallimard in his uh, in a in an imprint that he supervised.
0: With the conductor, you've taken another step in your other form of art, not as a curator but as a translator, and that demands that you combine, I think in a sense, skills that are akin to math and akin to poetry, and I think that's an interesting combination.
1: (laughs) You know, the fairy book was only, what, 23,000 words, I think, uh, in the end, uh, maybe 27,000 in French, and wow, was it hard. (laughs) I mean, like, I put that book through uh, several rounds of revisions where it feels like I I really... uh, Changed quite a bit, and I'm really grateful to various magazines uh, like Weird Fiction Review, Subtropics, Cafe Ir- Irreal to for for publishing uh, bits of fairy along the way, and sort of the smuggling into the public, the reader's eye before the book. I do think, you know, every every translation poses its own unique difficulties, and sometimes sometimes short story collections are even harder because. The writer varies his voice from story to story. It's also very fulfilling. Uh, I, I like to think of it as the ideal form of plagiarism.
0: <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it. But And you know, it, it strikes me too that it must be one thing to translate something that's fairly strictly realistic, and, and, and that's challenging enough. But when you're translating the fantastic, often I would assume, and I think you do this very well, you have to kind of read between whatever the original words were and create New words or new uh, parallels in the uh, corresponding language to capture the feel of the fantastic, which is uh, by definition ineffable.
1: Well, it's true. It's true that neologisms uh, are definite feature of of all speculative specfic translation. I definitely came up or improved on my early versions of some of those. And fairy can occasionally be a very silly writer too, which is both a challenge but also very liberating. for for translators. I did a children's graphic novel once called Billy Fogg that was full of made-up nursery rhymes and pages from an imagined bestiary with, you know, puns on the Latin names of fake insects and things. And uh, I do think the fantastic offers a very fertile ground for invention, not only for the writer, but the translator.
0: And I love the way this book was put together. I thought Wakefield Press did a a wonderful job. Tell us a little bit about the illist Claude uh, It Was he contemporary of fairies, or is he um, current day?
1: No, um, actually, well, well, uh, the fairy book in its current form, which is the one I translated, which is the original publication from the 50s augmented by four stories unearthed from archives of various magazines that fairy contributed to that book, was pub- uh, was brought out in 2011 by a small press called Editions Finitude in, I think, based in Bordeaux, uh, or near Bordeaux in France. And they were the ones who contracted Balleray. Uh, he's a contemporary uh, to put together these collages, uh, vaguely reminiscent of Max Ernst. Uh, 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 and um, uh, Wakefield just decided to carry over those uh Illustrations because they're pretty wonderful and Wakefield is in really an amazing press. It's been terrific to work with them. Mark Loenthal is one-man band. I really don't know how he he does it, and they put together a list that is the finest Euro obscurity list I've ever seen. It's it's just it's very dedicated. You know, he has a very very specific editorial mission to bring out these really fascinating, either neglected works by famous authors or neglected works by neglected authors, and he curates it really well
0: you know, one of the things that you were talking about earlier was that fairy can be kind of plain, playful, and, and I really agree. I, 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 love the sense his sensibility in this because he brings a, a lot of strangeness and uh, takes a lot of uh, wonderful twists of logic and, and and leaps of faith from one kind of uh, per, uh, set of perceptions to another. And I'm looking now at a story called Robinson, which must have been based a little bit, at least, on his time in the Merchant Marines, as well as uh, Robinson Crusoe, I'd like you to just talk about figuring out his sensibility and the way it changes from story to story, because sometimes he's a little more on the uh, razor-like Kafka-esque side, and other times it's a little more fun.
1: Well, I mean, he does—yeah, you're right. I mean, there's real, ho- there's all sorts of stories in here, both in terms of style and content, and that was one of the things that most delighted me when I first read the book, right? I mean, you, he's—the the shadow of Kafka falls over— all European fantastical stories uh, in the 20th century, but I mean, very pays clear homage to it in the story of Kafka or the Secret Society, you know, which is sort of a head game. Uh, you know, every time he says something, he kind of takes it back, and it goes back and forth, and it and it does walk exactly as you say, a razor edge. And but going back to one of the things you said earlier about the fantastical being um... ineffable, I do think that is something I am always wary of uh because I think translators sometimes have a tendency to want to explain because really when they're translating, at least in the first draft, they're explaining the foreign language to themselves. I mean that's kind of what's happening on the page there is there and you know, it's it's going through the head and coming out as an explanation to oneself in one's mother tongue. Leaving that kind of stuff in in a fantastical story is I think just death because fantastical stories have to move on this kind of invisible slippage from, you know, reality to to the fantastical realm. And, and they kind of die by it. any hint of over-explanation. It was one of the things that, translating the story Borgianu and Company, which is about a mountain climber who loses his rope team partner and then maybe wanders into kind of a revision of Shangri-La, there was an existing translation of that in an out-of-print anthology by someone who was associated with the English Surrealist uh, Simon Watson Taylor, and I, I did find that as beautiful as parts of his translation were, other parts I thought were were over-explained, you know, and uh, reduced some of the mystery. There's the Kafkaesque head games and parables. There's the there's an essay-like story called Frontiers of Plaster, which is just an essay about sleep and and how great it is. There's more classical fantastical stories like The Society of Tiger and Borgnew and Company. And then there's also really kind of far out there stories laden with invention. There's one called Homage to Baedeker, which has a town full of bird anglers, uh, people who fish for birds from hot air balloons. And fairies imagine the whole history of uh, economic decline for this small town and their sparrow canneries and, um, and the sort of folk tales that the old folks tell in this town about uh, great bird anglers from the past. It's, uh, and it's very fanciful.
0: Now, one of the things I think that is was so um, nice about this was the way he works at different lengths. You'll find some stories that are prose poems, some stories that are stories, some stories that seem like little snippets. So I'd like you to just talk about preserving his sense of story in any given story, because it seems to be greatly vary from story to story.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There are stories that drive their narrative drive from just great precision of language. Um, I mean, I think those are closer to the prose poems. Uh, Carbuncles, I think, is one that is almost completely a prose poem. Exactly.
0: Um, yeah, I really like Carbuncles.
1: And there are others that have, you know, more traditional forward momentum, clearly set scenes, characters, inner thoughts, and even ones that kind of read like memoirs. I mean, I think one interesting story to pair with The Society Tiger is Memories of childhood in society tiger is about a music hall act that really scares the narrator because it involves a hypnotized tiger and a very pretty woman and then, in memories of childhood, the narrator is talking about how his you know mother- uh used to perform a very scary high dive act in music halls that you know if you missed the pool, she could wind up in a pile of mangled flesh. It's very graphic actually for for ferry and then at the end he completely disavows everything. You're left questioning. You really don't know. You don't have your bearings anymore because he's built up something in a very memoirish style, whose seductiveness is based on its assumed veracity. And he pulls that rug out from under you. That was part of the the sort of fine tuning to fall in with whatever narrative engine he was using was was part of uh, definitely part of the revision process. I and mean, once the sort of general words and words were in place, just you know hewing closer to the vector of the story, i guess
0: so what translations are you working on now, and i you know where else will you explore in the French fantastic? There's quite a bit to be to be done out there
1: no, there absolutely is there absolutely is i, I well I, I write a regular column for um the Vandermeer's a uh, weird fiction review on French and Belgian fantastical authors, usually where I either try to the columns are usually either a retrospective of a single author or an investigation of a single work. A lot of those are authors that I've worked on already and have published uh, often in literary magazines. I've, I've published more than, uh, I think, 60 stories over, in the last couple years in, in lit mags, both online and in print. The bulk of that's been fantastical work. With the help of 10 England, I'm collecting that those stories along with some new, newer unpublished ones, into an anthology of French and Belgian fantastical fiction from 1940 to the present.
0: Is that coming out from Tartarus Press? Is that the... Um,
1: yes, I believe so. It doesn't have a release date yet, because still, I'm still working on the rights for a, a lot of the pieces. It should be about... Right now it's hovering around 23 stories, two or three per decade. I really want to give these stories, which are scattered in lit mags, a sort of a more permanent form, and, and making a, a credible argument for you know, the continuity of this tradition in the French language.
0: Well, this is all very fascinating, and I can't wait to see the collection, and we'll keep a lookout for your stories in the literary magazines and your work in the Vandermeer's Weird Fiction Review. I've been speaking with Edward Govan. He's a translator and curator of the French fantastic. His latest book is The Conductor and Other Tales. It's a translation of Jean Ferry. Thank you for joining me, Edward.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. It's It's been a real, real pleasure.